Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Nathan Connolly. And I'm Ed Ayers. Each week, Nathan, Ed, our colleague Brian Ballow, and I, all historians, take a topic from the headlines and try to see how we got here. And I'll note that Brian couldn't be here this week, but he will be back soon. Every few weeks, we're mixing it up with what we call the first draft of history. This is a more freewheeling conversation where we each bring in a story or a topic in the news that caught our eye. So today on the podcast, we're going to talk about body politics, or the art of the presidential handshake, and I suppose the presidential shove, John F. Kennedy at 100, and African-American landmarks. And then we're going to wrap up our conversation with a segment that we call footnotes. And that's basically when one of us shares a quirky or amusing item from the archives that we absolutely love. Okay, so let's dive into our first story. And I'm going to start things off with what I'm calling body politics. Thank you for that little cheer, Nathan. I appreciate it. (laughs) Body politics, the physicality of statecraft. Now, there's been a lot of that in the news over the course of roughly the past week. There was an incident in which President Trump shoved someone out of the way during a photo opportunity. There was a more recent incident in which the newly elected president of France, Emmanuel Macron, and President Trump had a sort of handshaking photo op Boy, that was a handshake. <laughs> they seemed to be clenching. Time, it? it went on for a long time. And, you know, if you look up close, they really did both look like they had white knuckles. So that was an intense <laughs> kind of a handshake. Now, generally speaking, I think it's fascinating to look at those kinds of moments, those physical moments that are not about words, but that are about the acting out of leadership and how people read those moments. So I guess what I really <laughs> wanted to talk about was that kind of body politics the history of that and ways in which other leaders have or maybe have not used that those kinds of optics to, to make a point. Right. I mean, you, you can't deny the fact that, you know, being a head of state is a very gendered job. Right. And, and so much of what, you know, even makes for like strong female leaders on the world stage is, unfortunately, a certain kind of masculine energy that they have to give off. Right. There are a lot of things that then get presumed about world leaders as a result of these performances. Right. I mean, a certain kind of able bodiedness, a certain kind, again, of masculine energy, certainly a kind of, you know, strength. Um, and there's a lot that goes into making a competent president that has nothing at all to do with those kind of superficial markers. And so, again, I think we have a very flat notion of what makes for power in large part because of the way that we've gradually, I think, placed more and more emphasis on the importance of the body in public. So, Joanna, if the cameras had been rolling back in the early republic, (laughs) is it your sense (laughs) that we would have caught such moments before? Or was Mm. politess so entrenched that people would have been very careful not to have taken any risk of offending one another? There actually were moments back then, I think, that were of the same ilk as what we're talking about now. And and one of them even has to do with a handshake. Um, mm. President Washington, and you know, the first president, and he was very aware that on every level he was the first and setting precedence of style and ritual in addition to of policy. Mm-hmm. He made a very deliberate decision that he would not shake hands with Whoa. people. 
like ever. that he would bow ever. He would wow. he would bow to them, which was a sign of respect, but he would not shake hands. And the reason I can say this, of course, is because people noticed. And, right. <laughs> and noted that, you know, he does not shake hands. Look at that. What does that mean? Is he acting yeah. monarchical? I'm not sure. Perhaps Did he, he run is. Purell? You know, what happened here? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Handshakes generally are seen as a moment of intimacy or bonding on some level. So I think he was kind of making that kind of a statement there by saying, no, you cannot bond with me. I'm the president <laughs> of the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not a king, but I'm a president and that matters. Well, so then as you kind of leap forward was... Andrew Jackson, very different, do you think? Was he all about a different kind of display? Well, you know, I was pondering that and thinking about this topic a little earlier today. And I wanted to be able to say, well, yes, Jackson was all about the common man. But actually what I called to mind were incidents of him bowing. Huh, really? There's a diary account of a ceremony at the very beginning of his presidency. And he individually bowed to every single person that came up to him. And this, the diary entry says something like, we had to close the door because otherwise he would have just exhausted himself. He was bowing like every two seconds to somebody. But what about more modern than that? I mean, are there other instances when something like this really had an, a positive or a negative impact? Well, well, in the 20th century, obviously, the, the example that jumps immediately to mind is that of Lyndon Baines Johnson, right? I mean, there was actual, and actually a name for the way that he would use physical space relative to, again, his friends and his adversaries, right? And they called it the treatment or getting the Johnson treatment. Um, and it was about, you know, kind of getting in close and looking people in the eye and using a certain kind of tone of voice. And, and Johnson was a master at kind of mixing it up depending on what he knew about, you know, respective senators or congresspeople. But it was, it was physical. It was a physical effort for him to... To legislate in the way that he wanted, especially when it came to trying to turn Southern Democrats in various ways, you know, in, in support of various, you know, difficult civil rights legislation. So even somebody like Trump, you know, pales in comparison to somebody like Lyndon Johnson, who made sure that not just with, you know, folks abroad, but with his own, you know, party and with his own American politicians on the Hill in the White House, that he can recognize the theater of physical interaction and, and applied pressure accordingly. And I have the the perfect example that suggests uh, the way that things have changed. Abraham Lincoln, uh, you've got, you guys have mm. heard of him. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, he seems to have been really bad at all of this physical uh, mm. intimidation or display. The comments of people who visited him in the White House were very often about how ill-fitting his clothes were and how awkwardly <laughs> he sat. Really, and you know how he, you know his his wrists sticking out of his sleeves and and uh, how he would sort of slump down in his chair. And so you, you got to figure some of this is compensating for being so much taller than everybody else. But it's also the case, even as a young man, he simply, even though he was known to be very strong, this stuff about being a rail splitter is, is real. But mm. in any kind of formal setting, he was really maladroit. And so it's interesting that in some ways, the more real game you have, the less you have to put on the dog, you know? You know, if you can get what Lincoln you... Lincoln had game, right? Lincoln yeah, had game. exactly. You know, he got what he wanted and needed, but he didn't right. try to do it through these sort of micro displays of, uh, of masculinity or control. Matter of fact, he would often sort of make a show of not being the dominant one, but somehow right. he would walk out with what he needed. Right. So. That's what I was going to say, is there's a power in not seeming to need to do that, right? And particularly if it, if it looks authentic, which in this mm-hmm. case, it sounds like it certainly did. What do you think this means for the role of women as potential leaders of the United States? So I think there is something to be said about, you know, women changing the optics of what leadership 
can be. Um, you know, I mean, not to say that they have to be less, you know, strong in public, but there's certainly no need to have these death grip contests, you know, in front of cameras in order to demonstrate kind of national strength. Um, so I would hope at least that with, there's a move away from a more, a more masculine demonstration of, of, of force, certainly. It's interesting, though. It really does emphasize the way in which when we're talking about these things like handshakes and pushing people aside, what we're really talking about is physically negotiating power, Yeah. Mm-hmm. right? We're talking about people with power sort of finding different ways to negotiate or, or display that. And so it makes perfect sense that when you throw women into that mix, that story has to be complicated right. and told differently. And it'll be fascinating to see how that plays out in future. Yeah, Joanne, so it may be that we're actually more aware of these kinds of negotiations, this kind of jostling, this kind of testosterone feel handshaking, because we have seen sort of alternative visions on yeah. uh, in the last mm. election. So let's put it this way. Uh, we're going to be more alert to body language <laughs> than we've ever been mm-hmm. before. And I think mm-hmm. that's that is true. more fodder for historians. <laughs> that's always good. I agree. Now on to our second topic. Ed, tell us what caught your attention this week. Well, Joanne, something literally caught my attention. I was in the checkout line at the supermarket with my wife, and we looked at each other in amazement when we saw three news magazines that pointed out this is the 100th birthday of JFK. Wow. And for both my wife and I, JFK and Jackie and Caroline and John John and all that were sort of the first historical memories that we have and so tangled up with the birth of the space race and that sort of sense of what he called Viga. I had a sweatshirt that actually said Viga, and those of you who can't tell what I'm saying, it's the Tennessee translation of the Massachusetts pronunciation of the word vigor, uh, which tells you a lot of what he was associated with and what he stood for. Mm. And, you know, I know that not all of this popular belief, uh, this great love for the man uh, is borne out by the historical record. But I was surprised to look deep in my heart and find this kind mm-hmm. of kernel of emotional attachment to something that I knew wasn't literally true. So help me untangle <laughs> these personal memories from the the facts of history. Was he that awesome? Well, obviously, you know, it, it was a very abbreviated time in the office for, for JFK. And you know, with only three years, he had, you know, certain things that he did well and other things not so well, obviously. But there is something about the way that we regard those people who lost their life while in office and, and JFK's kind of stature as, you know, both a kind of playboy figure, obviously, and, and a representation of a certain kind of celebrity presidency has everything to do with the fact that he was snuffed out. So I would say, I mean, JFK's value, certainly relative to how Americans imagine themselves and even imagine the presidency, is not going to change a whole lot in the coming decades. But I will say we are getting, you know, further and further away from having public conversations about, say, you know, the Bay of Pigs, right, or the Cuban Missile Crisis. I, th- I think a lot right. of the details are going to get lost. Well, and, and what strikes me, that what strikes me about what you're saying, Nathan, and, and how we started out with what you were saying, Ed, is that, um, you know, it, they're, as historians, as a matter of fact, Ed, you're, you're kind of straddling <laughs> this sort of historian slash public right. divide, right? As historians, what you've just said, Nathan, um, is how we would evaluate a president, right? Mm-hmm. It's based on actions and policies, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. which makes perfect sense. But- as non-historians, as the American public, and I think this is particularly true with JFK, that's not how he's being evaluated. He's being evaluated 
sort of symbolically, right? For for what he represented, the, the spirit of the moment. Represent him. Exactly. Right, right. Precisely. You know, that, that he represents a moment in time and it's a moment particularly that seemed to be full of ideals and and just like you said, you know, he seems like he'll be forever young. Indeed, that that there was a youthfulness to that moment and a hopefulness to that moment. And I think that that sort of symbolic, uh, as Nathan called it, iconic power yeah. is is really there. Well, I mean, well, you, we, you know, you have to look at you know the record, right? I mean, granted, oh, he was old. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's, he's only he in do? office for, for for three years, but he has a, a, an extraordinary kind of debacle in his attempted invasion of Cuba. You have you know an effort to try to reach out to African nations to improve the country's reputation, you know, abroad. But even that move is a way to sidestep the fact that he wasn't that interested in doing anything about civil rights, right? So you kind of can step toward one black country or one, you know, one right. black continent as opposed to actually dealing with the question of civil rights. I mean, even the March on Washington was largely, you know, tried to be co-opted by the Kennedy White House. I um, mean, it required a lot of pushback from activists kind of on the ground. So the notion that we have of this kind of statesman who is, you know, progressive and certainly, you know, brilliant on the international stage doesn't really hold up even to the brief time that he had in office. So, Nathan, and some of the things that the seeds he planted ended up bearing a lot of bitter fruit later. Uh, how about Vietnam? Do, do we hold him to account for our entanglement there? No, certainly not. I mean, you know, v- Vietnam is is more associated with Lyndon Johnson, certainly even with, you know, Nixon. But, you know, it was obviously Kennedy who, you know, raised troop levels there and, and got us more deeply involved and deeper invested in Southeast Asia in ways that certainly led to the failures in, in Vietnam. Then, you know, it's, it's an absolute moment of historical revision to kind of remove him from that story. And yet he somehow gets credit for the moon landing 1969, six years after right. his assassination. So <laughs> he somehow comes off clean on Vietnam, but comes off as the hero of the, of the <laughs> space race. Uh, mm-hmm. How do we explain that? Presidents, and this has always been true about presidents, but it's probably more true for some than others. Presidents are political and military and diplomatic leaders, and they're also symbols. Right, right. Right. And they have to do both things, and some are better at one than the other. Um, and in JFK's case, he certainly was super strong in that that second category of, of representing mm-hmm. something symbolically. In Kennedy's case, that's so powerful. And that's right. particularly true when you consider what we just said, that, right. you know, as far as what he actually delivered, he doesn't get an A on that count. Mm-hmm. So how do we separate out? You know, you look at the polls in which people say who's a great president. And JFK is often near the top. I think he was most recently ranked the best president since we've had since World War II. Right. But academic historians are far harsher in their judgment. But it seems to me that Andrew Jackson might be the closest analog to Kennedy. Not that he was young and forceful, to the contrary, but his symbolism seemed mm-hmm. so strong and he was so popular, but historians are really hard on him and increasingly mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right. And and there was such a groundswell of public emotional response to the image that he projected. Right. Uh, and that's, for some people, he still does, right? But, but certainly at the time, um, that's that's true. That's a really good example. That's what he was all about was was representing himself in a in a visual kind of a way, symbolic kind of a way as a different kind of leader. 
Well, I offered myself up at the beginning as the naive non-historian preceptor <laughs> because he seems so contemporary even now. Uh, I remember, so I was in second grade uh, when he ran for president. And I think all of you will find this hard to believe, but I swear it's true that <laughs> I did a killer JFK imitation. <laughs> and I was so good they put me in front of the entire school for the school assembly to do my JFK impersonation. Wow. And I had a styrofoam hat that was like a pretend straw hat that said JFK and Johnson on it. And I was really into this, which is really strange because I, I come from a, a mixed faith family. Uh, my mother's Republican. My dad's a Democrat. Right, and, right. And <laughs> but mom was just stricken by John F. Kennedy. Mm. So it's interesting. I'm just mm. glad I studied presidents from a long time ago that I don't introduce <laughs> my own youthful memories uh, into the question. Right. I'm not sure how you do it, Nathan, but uh, you seem to be rising <laughs> above uh, <laughs> personal experience. Well, I have no memory of JFK, thankfully, that I have to kind of disabuse myself of. But but I, what I will say, I mean, it, it really is, is a powerful example yet again, right, of the many different things that we expect these kind of heads of state to, to do for us. It's like they have to kind of represent the best of us kind of symbolically or even in a, in a moment in time and then be able to be like really good about like making sure that you have good roads and a good economy and like good health care. Actual stuff. needs to be right? done. Yeah. yeah, but whatever they do, they need to lead with Vega. <laughs> <laughs> we'll head on to our third topic in a moment, but first, a quick message for our listeners. Okay, Ed, what do Dolly Parton, Don King, and Albert Einstein all have in common? Oh, gosh. Well, one thing they have in common, and something I admire so much and try to embody in my own life, is pretty extravagant hair. That is true. They all have signature hairstyles. Their locks say something about who they are. Now, have you ever had some kind of a signature hairstyle, Ed? In the very early 70s, when I finally was allowed to have my hair the way that it was meant to be, which is out of control and curly and too long, it meant I was like Bob Dylan. And then while other people adapted to the times, I refused to. So I still look like that. <laughs> History forever, right? Uh, you're, you're the <laughs> historical hair. I'm letting my freak flag fly, except it won't actually oh. fly. It just kind of sits there. <laughs> well, that leads us into the question that we're going to be talking about soon. And that is, what does your hairstyle say about you? How does your hair convey your identity? Or are you happy that it doesn't? So listeners, send us a 30-second voice memo from your smartphone to backstory at virginia.edu. And we'll feature some of your stories on our upcoming episode on the history of hair. Okay, let's get to our third topic. Nathan... What do you have for us? So we've been talking a lot lately about landmarks and monuments coming down, particularly in relative to, you know, Confederate statues. And I want to talk about things that are going up, monuments and signs and landmarks. I saw a headline last week from the New York Daily News in reference to a young man named Khalif Browder, who's getting a street named after him in the Bronx, Khalif Browder Way. Now, Khalif was a 16-year-old who was arrested and put into Rikers Island as a teenager on the charge that he had robbed a fellow young man um, of his backpack. The family mm -hmm. couldn't bail him out of jail. He eventually spent three years in prison and 400 days of that time 
in solitary confinement, as wow. well as suffering other kinds of abuse. Um, he refused to take a plea deal and said he was guilty of the crime, but instead was released ultimately, but not without being significantly damaged psychologically to the point where he actually committed suicide. Um, now, this is, you know, one of these really sad stories about the consequences of mass incarceration. But the way in which the family decided to mark his presence with a street naming, the ways in which city council members have decided to rally around him as a symbol for reform in the criminal justice system, both of these and more represent, I would say, a long tradition in the history of, you know, commemoration, public history, and of African-American landmarking more broadly. And, And I would love to, you know, have a discussion about the ways in which we as a country oftentimes, you know, from very marginal, you know, positions, try to write our name into the country's general story. Hmm. Well, so, you know, it strikes me, Nathan, an early example along the lines of what you're talking about here has to do with Crispus Attucks. Right. And a, a monument built to Crispus Attucks. And I guess the 19th century, the late 19th century. Right. Um, and Attucks uh, was one of the I guess the British would have called them rebels. The Americans would call them patriots who stood up to the British at the Boston Massacre at the beginning of the American Revolution and was killed. And that's a small group of people. So they're, they're known who these right. people were who fell. Attucks is a great example. I mean, he was a dock worker. You know, he was in Boston and, you know, he was part of a small group of people who were, you know, reportedly throwing snowballs at British troops. Um, The the story, you know, has it that, you know, the the troops basically turned bayonets on this small group of people. Let me add those snowballs with rocks in them. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Those hurt. Those do hurt. Um, And, you know, there was bayonets first directed at at the men and then they they were fired upon, right, by by, by the troops. And and Attucks was the first to fall. And so the the debate about kind of African-Americans in public really does go back, as you point out, to this period in Boston. And it is a very real effort on the part of African-Americans in the city to try to make themselves, you know, clearly part of the origin story of the country. There is an Irishman, Patrick Carr, who's part of this group, two other kind of, you know, uh, white American Protestants who are part of this. And the notion that you could have a monument that would somehow unify these various groups and represent them as the kind of founding martyrs of the country, that was considered to be, you know, by many uh, more elite Bostonians at the time, kind of out of bounds, right? That they should not be represented because they were rabble rousers. These were, these were not the statesmen that helped to craft people the country. People on the street. Ex- ex- they absolutely. literally were people who happened to be on the street. Absolutely. And and the language of like, you know, calling it the Attic's Monument as a way to make it seem less credible or talking about it as honoring rioters and, and, and thugs. Those were the arguments against commemorating this, you know, first kind of African-American patriot. And so all that to say that the, the kind of stakes around who can be part of the the dominant narrative and how the the actual creation of these monuments as a way of fixing the place in that narrative. Um, Those are not by any, you know, stretch of the imagination, new debates. True. Although, you know, even the irony of that, the obvious irony of that being that the Boston Massacre is always in the narrative, right? The national narrative has the Boston Massacre smack at the beginning of the revolution. And even the phrase Boston Massacre, I remember when I was in school, uh, I had a teacher ask me if the Boston Massacre was a massacre. And clearly the answer she wanted was no, Mm. that this was propaganda. But I remember saying, well, yes, because innocent people were killed. And I got yelled at. (laughs) (laughs) But, But that's part of the narrative. And in her case, she had a particular narrative that she was telling. That's how Joanne Freeman became a historian. She was, right. 
But, you know, it's interesting. Also in Boston, I think another sort of counterexample to the national trend, which is to not commemorate African-American leadership, is the remarkable monument to the United States colored troops by Augustus St. Gaudin. And, you know, where there are actual African-Americans with identifiable faces marching right. in the Civil War unit. Um, and that's a, People it, might know that from the movie Glory. Yeah, right? exactly. Correct. Uh, Correct. And so that's also late 19th century. But, you know, then that fades away that um, white Americans really aren't that interested in writing African-Americans into the national story for quite a long time. Even the memorial to emancipation is Abraham Lincoln handing Emancipation Proclamation to a mm. kneeling slave. Uh, right. And so, you know, it's this comes and goes. And it, I think it goes back to your original point, Nathan. It suggests that we're in a different kind of moment. It's not unimaginable that we would have these monuments to African-Americans who had sort of played their own role in the nation's history. But the tradition's been quite broken because of white Americans' control of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I will say about that, Ed, is that, and, and this is, again, one of these things that really does hammer home what's at stake with the kind of work that we do. You know, th- certainly the case that you, you have a, a large kind of gaping divide between, say, the era of Crispus Attucks and the creation of the big Martin Luther King monument on the National Mall, right? right. But but between those two poles, you have, you know, in, in largely invisible corners of the country, these efforts to try to use historic preservation, to try to use landmarking, to basically win very small, very in- intensely local fights around things like the availability of public parks, so right, naming right, right. parks after African-American civil rights icons, or certainly the spate of schools that were named after Booker T. Washington in the early part of the right. 20th century, right? All of these are efforts to, like, carve out spaces of Mm self-determination. So Mm -hmm. this is all, I think, a really important part of how we've mobilized history to, you know, solve really immediate kinds of problems. It's also worth saying that, you know, we we started out talking about these big national monuments or even Mm -hmm. big local monuments. But what you're just talking about there, Nathan, has a different kind of a power, but no less of a power. And that is on the local level, asserting identity and asserting narrative. I mean, just because it's local and just because it's the name of a school right. or a park right. doesn't mean that it has any less power. It's just a different kind of power. Yeah, you, you folks are telling me something I didn't think was really possible, which is something fresh to say about the Confederate memorial debate that's going on right now. If we pull the camera back the way that you have, Nathan, and realize that this is a part of decades-long struggle mm-hmm. to basically recast the American landscape, and if you start adding to it not just big statues of men on horseback, back, but local middle schools and and street corners and parks, we realize that there's a rewriting of the American story in a far more inclusive way, Mm. in which case the Confederate monuments now seem real outliers. Um, So it's interesting that the Confederate monuments are not the entering wedge of the conversation, but in Mm -hmm. some ways it's a byproduct of a conversation that's been going on for several decades now to sort of reclaim the American landscape. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, and and what gets lost, I think, in in a lot of this discussion about the big monuments is simply, like, how does history get kind of operationalized? You know, how do you create the money for opening a new school or building a new statue, right? right? right. I mean, these are all allocations. You have to have the right politicians in place. You have to build Mm -hmm. constituencies. And it's a a very long conflict. But I have a hard question for you here, Nathan. Okay. Could we also believe— that white people were all too happy to name one Booker T. Washington School or one Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in a city as a sort of uh, empty gesture toward, there's your space, now leave us alone in ours. 
Oh, I mean, you know, this this is the question. This is the question because, you know, when you have a name that goes up, there's always going to be trade-offs, right? And again, I think you know, the question about a Khalif Browder Way or any other kind of like national monument, say in the King Monument, is does it open a conversation or does it close one, right? Um, you know, is, is, is it going to be the end of a discussion about certain kinds of stop and frisk practices in New York City by having this one monument in place? So all of this to say that this is one of these things where once you get something written into stone or marble or in a street sign, you get an iconic representation, certainly, but it removes a lot of the complexity and messiness as well. But, you know, I, I think you're talking about starting and closing stories and narratives. And I, I think even in trying to close a story, you open up another one. I think, mm. And I think what you're talking about is a dramatic example of that. Okay, so it's time for our final segment which we call footnotes. And usually we share something that one or another of us have brought from the archives that we particularly love. So I brought something in today um, and I want to read you the title of it. Um, It comes from a magazine from 1860 and it's a a sort of fake advertisement. And it's a fake advertisement for a book and this is the title of that book. Mm. The Congressman's Guide to Fame or... The true vocabulary of vituperation presenting in a concise and collected form the most approved and effective epithets and denunciations known to the English tongue. <laughs> now, it, it's, it's a guidebook, basically, for congressmen to insult each other. And it starts out by saying, by the careful study of this work, the most inoffensive and innocuous congressman may speedily achieve a reputation for energy, manliness, vigor, mm. vigor, uh, and courage, which shall be equaled by none and excelled by few. <laughs> it then goes on to talk about um, how handy it would be if you're a congressman that you have this dictionary of insults. And I want to just read you an example. And it, it's it's the bees, the example of bee insults and how a congressman <laughs> it's, it's might alphabetized. use them. Okay. It okay. is alphabetized. It's very handy. Okay. So if you're a congressman and you want to insult someone and you happen to turn to the bee page, sir, I impugn no man, but I call upon the gentleman to deny my charges if he can and meet them like a man. Do we not know him for a babbler, for a blasted, blathering, blustering, brawling blower? But do we not fear his barren bravado? Why, sir, if he isn't a baboon, what is he? I say a Barnum's baboon. His beastly and brutal barbarities have been heard by all. I think that's got pizzazz. (laughs) Or pizzazz. Oh, I set myself up for that one. Now, I I brought this in. Well, I brought this in for a couple of reasons. Um, To show off your alliteration skills, clearly. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And the fact that I can say that and speak very quickly. Um, Not unrelated. I brought it in partly because it's funny. And it's political and funny and political are both good things for us to have nowadays. Um, along the same lines, I brought it in because obviously there are echoes of the present. This this comes from 1860. It's obviously another moment of extreme political polarization. And much like the present, there was a big burst of, of satirical humor. A big at that burst? Particular Is that moment. what you were saying? A big bloviating burst <laughs> to meet that, that sense of, of crisis of the moment. Right. But most of all, I brought it in because I think it does a great job of showing the link between a sense of crisis and humor. It, it really shows you some of the things that humor can do and why there's that kind of a link that we're seeing now. I, I think it obviously it diffuses tension. 
it ridicules politicians. And ideally, I suppose that kind of a piece might be prodding them to do better because no politician wants to be ridiculed. Mm. And I think that kind of a piece, it lets people vent frustration and get some kind of a sense of confirmation that your own feelings of frustration are shared by others. So that kind of humor in a moment of crisis kind of creates a sense of community. You know, I, I hate to be a killjoy on Uh-oh. all this, but I hate to point out it's only 18 months later that the Civil War breaks out. So Pretty much. <laughs> well, yeah. so, so it didn't work so well. <laughs> it makes, it's true. I guess it shows the limits of humor in some that's right. way. That, that's kind of a ha, 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 oh. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, the extent to which people ever picked this up and ever tried to do what you could do, clearly, um, and, and mobilizing some of this language, I mean, rhetoric, clearly mattered, right? And being able to kind of rattle off an insult with an, almost a Shakespearean verve um, right. <laughs> seems like right. it, it brings a certain kind of stature in the halls of Congress. Absolutely. Um, Public opinion, as always, mattered enormously to politicians. But one of the ways in which you won that was standing up in the House or the Senate and giving forth these grand rhetorical bursts. So, Joanna, is that harsher, you think, than what people would say to each other today in the halls of power? Well, I think in the halls of power, what people are saying is not so, oddly enough, is not so visible, right? I mean, I think when you when you turn on C-SPAN and look to see what's going on in Congress, what you see is a largely empty room and one person talking, which kind of doesn't give you a... Yes. Exactly. <laughs> blathering and bloviating. Um, right. That, that, you know, I, I don't think that that's the place now where the sort of great pronouncements and powerful rhetoric comes from. I think it, it comes from any variety of other places that now we have access to that we wouldn't have had access to so much in the 19th century. And it may be that Twitter is now the place where these subtle (laughs) put-downs and not-so-subtle insults are flying. That's going to do it for today. But you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about American history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And if you like the show, feel free to review it in Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in our show came from Poddington Bear, and as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins University studio in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.